Hello and welcome to the Create Me Podcast with your host Ike Hedler. Yeah, so this is episode 10. Episode 10 um, is with local writer Emily Utter. Emily's actually from Canada. Um, speak about a lot of things during this episode, you know, we cover you know how Emily has a established kind of family connection in Aberdeen already. Um, she also kind of talks about her early kind of creative influences in her life, along with education experiences and growing up in Canada. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a very interesting chat um, with Emily. You know, we cover a whole range of things from death and bereavement, the kind of whole high Harvey Weinstein kind of stuff. Look at like I have done in previous episodes with previous guests. Yeah, so I really enjoyed um, catching up with Emily, and luckily enough, she also kind of reads an extract from her book that. She She's in the process of writing, that's called Wedgwood. So I think you guys will really enjoy the episode and just remember to keep liking and sharing um, the Create Me podcast episodes. And yeah, I'll catch you guys up on episode 11. And yeah, enjoy this episode. Bye for now. Welcome to the Create Me podcast. Um, yeah, this is going to be an interesting one, I think, because um, the guest I have on today isn't actually a local. Um, <laughs> she's actually from Canada. Her name is Emily Utter. She's a Canadian prose writer based in Aberdeen. Much of her work focuses on family narrative, trauma and memory, and often features rural or remote communities in both Canada and Scotland. She has published flash fiction, short stories, novel extracts, and creative non-fiction in Scotland, Canada, and the United States. Emily is also a writer residence at Roxborough House in Aberdeen. She holds a PhD in creative writing from the University of Aberdeen and is an honorary fellow of the Word Centre for Creative Writing. She is a member of the Aberdeen Writers Studio and a recipient of the 2017 Creative Funding Award. Welcome to the show. Thank you How's for having me. Good, good. <laughs> it's really strange to hear your bio come back at you. Okay. Yeah, I've done some stuff, I guess. Yeah. Well, I know, like, kind of following some of your work online, I was kind of interested, like, um, I'm also interested in sort of, like, migration, maybe because of my own family, um, mm-hmm. come from the Caribbean, coming up to the UK. And I also find it very interesting when I bump into someone who is not from Aberdeen. And so how did you find yourself in Aberdeen? Um... Well, obviously, I came over to do uh, my postgrad initially to do my MLIT, and then I stayed to do my PhD. But um, my dad's mum's family is actually from Aberdeen, okay. and they emigrated to Canada um, in the 1850s. So, sort of shortly after the clearances, they decided to go over there. Um, so Aberdeen was kind of always on my radar, um, you know, just those like kind of stories of like the great Scots of the family, okay. <laughs> you yeah. know, getting passed down generation yeah. to generation. So it was definitely a place I always wanted to visit. And it was just really fortunate that when I decided I was, I was going to come to Scotland to do my master's, wherever that was going to be, that Aberdeen had a really good program. Okay, cool. And... So how long have you been in Aberdeen now then? How many years has that been? I've actually been here just over six and a half years okay, now. Okay, yeah. right. And how did you find that, Like, I guess like you were saying, well, from your ancestry back home, is Scottish. Was that kind of like 
more exposure, I guess, coming to Aberdeen and like, okay, this is very Pacific kind of Scottish, you know, like with the Doric and, you know, stuff. Yeah, yeah. I, I was not expecting that. Yeah. Um, but the world is small. So yeah. oddly, my hairdresser back home, who's from Leeds, her mom's whole family was from Aberdeen. They were like Tory people. Oh, okay. Um, right. So I remember when I told her I was coming over here, she was going through some of the Doric with me, mm. and I was like, what is this? <laughs> and it's just one of those things you can't really appreciate or contextualize until mm. you're in it, and then yeah. you're like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. I see now. Yeah. yeah. So basically, more or less now, you're more like a local now. Do you feel that way a bit? Yeah, I mean... Yeah. Um, my boyfriend is from like out Inchway okay. and his whole family speaks Doric. Yeah. So that's been an experience. Yeah. But um, <laughs> I, I know Aberdeen better yeah. than he does. Okay. Um, so yeah, I, I do think of myself as a local. I've definitely set down roots here. Yeah. Um, and it would be a much bigger move to go mm. back to Canada now than it was when I moved over okay. six and a half years ago. Okay, cool, cool. So, so... Like you've got yourself really kind of well established in Aberdeen, and one thing I was kind of curious about, like for me, I think like creativity it can be explored in various ways. Or how do you think like creative? How did like writing for you become your creative outlet? Um, I guess it kind of started well when I was a kid because <laughs> I I grew up on a farm. So <laughs> my brother and I always talk about how we spent a lot of time alone. You know. Okay just out in the country um, and that kind of forced me to use my imagination to pass time okay. um, and I also watched a lot of really weird movies when I was right. a kid like um, Labyrinth and Never Ending Story yeah. and uh, Dark Crystal yeah. um, just you know really visually stunning things like that that just fed my imagination in yeah. a lot of ways um, and I started, I, I mean, I went to Montessori school. I don't know if you know Montessori. No, no. It's not really a thing over here. Yeah. Um, it's all about like self-directed learning. So basically you, you pick tasks throughout the day and right. you, um, it, it, you, the child essentially decides what they're going to okay. do, <laughs> which maybe like wasn't a great idea because <laughs> the only thing I ever chose to do was draw and write stories. <laughs> so like I was 10 going into middle school yeah. and I could not do math okay. at all. all right. um, but though, you know, here I am. So obviously that was a good thing yeah. in the long term. Um, so yeah, I was always, you know, in a journal, in a notebook, mm -hmm. writing, reading a lot. Um, and it just kind of grew from there. And there yeah. were definitely like dips in my interest or, you know, the time that I had. Oddly, I was a pretty high performance athlete for a long time. Right. I downhill ski raced. Right. Um, but I kind of came out of that, went into university. And then that whole writing thing kind of picked back up again. Mm -hmm. And I guess, like, for you, um, where's the university you was based back home? Where was that? Um, so I'm from uh, Hamilton, Ontario, mm -hmm. which is about 40 minutes from Toronto. Okay. Um, and I went and did a journalism, a Bachelor of Journalism at Ryerson University mm -hmm. in Toronto. So I was living right downtown. Yeah. It's 
called Young and Dundas. That's sort of Toronto's Times Square, which was obviously a big change from being... From a farm. Yeah, yeah, from a farm. And then, you know, we did move to the suburbs when I was 15, but even still, like, that was nothing. That was not a city. Yeah. Um, So, you know, I had sort of wanted to go to other universities. They were a bit more, not rural, but small university towns, more like Aberdeen, maybe. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, going to Toronto and spending nearly five years there, yeah. that was really um, a totally different experience. Okay. Opened me up to meeting lots of different kinds of people mm-hmm. and having lots of different kinds of experiences. Yeah. And um, the journalism, obviously, I think that really helped my writing ability yeah. as well. And so you did some journalism back in Canada as well where you, while you were studying? Yeah, um, I had an internship in my final year at the CBC just kind of like the Canadian version of the BBC. Um, yeah. And I was actually on a scripted um, kind of current events show. So of all the things I could have done, actually, there was a lot of creative writing involved mm-hmm. because everything was scripted, which is a bit strange. Yeah. Um, and uh, after that, I did some community radio stuff. Um, and I also wrote during my uh, undergrad for... Um, music magazine so I was doing album reviews and um, interviewing bands and stuff like that okay yeah. cool that sounds really interesting then isn't that and cool and seems like a lifetime ago okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know it's one great. thing you said there about the kind of like you know um, how like you know for you growing up like a bit, a bit lonely with mm-hmm. you and your brother but also kind of finding something like interesting in like those films like the dark crystal and lab, mm-hmm. you know labyrinth and i think yeah they, these are very much familiar to me and yeah. my kind of like you know generation i mean i stuff, had right? i had night terrors until i yeah. was 10 and i'm sure it was partly you know watching those films yeah. and being far too young but yeah. i love them still so yeah they are even though it's most of the kind of films that definitely had that involvement like jim henson workshop like the puppets and stuff and if anyone hasn't i'm sure the listeners have probably like heard of you know those kind of things and that story was still you know one of the labyrinth ones it's quite dark like a baby being kidnapped and but still there are moments of like childhood wonder yes in there so like you know for you like you obviously an established writer now and what is your kind of writing process like where how do you kind of find that place some people say being in the zone or being Mm -hmm. in that workspace what kind of works for you um going back to being alone really Um, and I think that's why, um, you know, my first publications happened when I was over here. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you find this, but being away from home kind of gives you more perspective on home yeah. and gives you sort of a bigger appreciation for what is there being separate from it. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the main things actually that I s- explored a little bit in my PhD and still explore in my novel is s- sort of odd like Canadian vernacular. And I think listening to the Doric here yeah. and seeing how um, different it is just within miles of each other yeah. um, kind of made me think, oh, what are the weird things that we say back home and how can that sort of add to the flavor of my writing? Yeah. Um, so that was one big thing. Um, but just also my novel is very much inspired by my family. And I think if I was there, I wouldn't be able to look at that also objectively to be able to write about it because you'd be immersed in it and, you know, it would just be happening. So it's this Wedgwood. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I know you sent me some of our reds and it's really, really kind of like, you know, interesting. So 
I'm, I'm guessing like for you doing that research that was more based on your family was that on your mum's side or your father's side on my mum's side okay. um very much inspired by my mum and her two sisters mm-hmm. and um their relationships with their parents um and then also sort of my generation of kids as well and mm. um, that idea of stories and memories being passed down generation to generation and also more inherent things, mm. behavior being passed down. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was what really kickstarted all of yeah. that for me. So <clears throat> I, I know a lot of people, you know, they struggle with a PhD, in particular struggle with a creative writing PhD because it's two very different types of writing yeah. that sort of butt up against each other. Um, but for me, it really worked. Okay. Um, yeah, I would do like three months of creative writing and then I'd kind of have to like, hang that hat up Mm -hmm. and do three months of academic writing Mm -hmm. so I did that for four years but um you know the creative wouldn't have come to me if I hadn't also had that research in the background yeah and how did you find that kind of like you know exploring a bit of like your mom's history and her life and her relationship with her her parents your grandparents was she very forthcoming or was she kind of like oh maybe you know I don't want to kind of tell you everything or it was it was a very um strange experience Mm. I mean I spoke to my mom a lot and I still do but I also talked to my two aunties as well um and almost like the more we talked about it the more kind of came up it was really like an excavation of the past of their memories and then also what I really wanted to capture in the novel which was the differences between their memories because even though you grow up in a family with you know say two siblings your perspective on that and the way that you um, remember it you know it's going to be different Mm -hmm. and so looking at why it's different and how it's different and whether is there you know, one memory that should stand above all others, yeah. or is there a way, and this is what I tried to do in the novel, to kind of present everything okay. and then leave it to the reader to figure out what they want to believe. Yeah. Okay. That sounds really interesting as well. You know, like, and what's the kind of reception been like to, like, Wedgwood by family and friends in the public? Um, by family and friends, really good. Um, the, the draft of the novel that I've got now... Yeah is very different from what I finished the PhD with. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always knew that was going to be the case because free from a thesis, I could then really just let things open up. Yeah. Um, but they did read the thesis version and had nothing but good things to say That's about good. it, which That's was really good. good. Yeah. And then um, two extracts were published in 2015, mm. one by Hypertext Magazine in Chicago and another by Guts Magazine in Toronto. Um, So that was obviously hugely validating. Um, And last June, I went to the Expo North Creative Industries Conference Mm -hmm. in Inverness. And um, I'd been accepted to live pitch the novel to a panel of publishers. um, And the feedback was overwhelmingly positive. That's really good. So that was really good. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds really awesome. Then it's like, you know, that I guess... You know, from everyone, anyone who's doing something creative, and then just to see, I guess there's all that nerve-wracking thing of actually putting it out there to the public, and friends and family, you know, given they're going to probably be positive responses, but when it's someone you don't know, and, you know, the reaction is, you know, overwhelmingly positive, I guess for you, that kind of spurs you on more to go like, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm on the right path, I'm on the right track. Yeah, it definitely yeah. does. Yeah. Um, <coughs> I remember a couple of years ago, I was at the... 
May festival up at the university mm-hmm. doing a reading. And there were questions from the audience at the end. And um, one guy asked about, I can't remember what the exact question was, but something about getting pieces published. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, point blank, it is very validating and it does motivate you. And he kind of like looked at me weirdly and he's like, but is that the point? And I was like, <laughs> well, no, yeah. it's not the point. It's not why you do it, yeah. but you know, it's that George Orwell thing. Like there's reasons why you write and part of it definitely is ego for sure. Yeah. 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 Okay. Cool. It's interesting that you're saying that. I, I think not a lot of many people would kind of possibly admit that, but I think, I think, I guess, all, I guess many aspects of creativity, there is a bit of ego no in there isn't yeah. there like i think in, it's yeah. tied in with that vulnerability aspect yeah um i mean i've been very possessive of my writing for mm-hmm. the last year and a bit right. even you know my writers group they haven't seen anything um <laughs> anything new from me in yeah. a while um and it's partly coming out of the phd and having um my supervisor who's mm. who acted in part as an editor you know, seeing everything and, and guiding me through the process. And then at the end of it, me having to go write. I've spent five years in university learning how to do this. You know, the tools of the trade. I need time to figure out if I can be my own, you know, yeah. editor and, yeah. and know what feels right, and know what sounds good and yeah. just trust that I do know what I'm doing. Yeah. So that was a big, um, big transition, but I'm also glad that I took that time to do it. Okay, yeah. cool. One thing I'm, I was kind of also interested about is like, how did your position as a writer in residence at Roxborough House come about? Um, so I graduated from my PhD last November, yeah. um, but I'd actually submitted the final copy of uh, my hard copy of my thesis in August. So I had a few months where I was looking for work. Um, and it actually came up through my writer's group. A friend of mine posted the job ad, um, and I had to go in and do a very short 10-minute creative writing workshop. Um, And actually, part of the... I think part of the reason that I I got the position was not just my writing being more established, um, having a good sense of who I am as a writer, but I also um, teach swimming at the Sports Village. Okay. And at that time, I had been doing regular lessons with an Evergreens group. So plus 60s, you know, people coming in who have never swum before wow. and deciding, you know, later in life that they're going to give, give it a go. Oh, yeah. nice. And sometimes, um, you know, there would be uh, physical challenges with that, mm. um, a lot of fear involved and so it was almost less about the swimming in that context than just trying to support them through it and at Roxborough you know you have to be very patient Mm -hmm. um you do have a lot of challenges I mean there are people who can't hold a pen for example so a lot of the work that I do I'm typing for them like their scribe or their secretary um and you know, I never really thought that that swimming thing would come in and help me further my writing career, but in yeah. this case, it really did. And Roxborough House, like, correct me if I'm wrong, was that like the palliative end of life kind of yeah. stages? Yeah, palliative care yeah. hospital, yeah. end yeah. of life, pain management, yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. And oh, that's my tummy rumbling. <laughs> oh, <wait. laughs> I didn't hear it. Yeah, okay. <laughs> the mic heard it, so I. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's, it's very, uh, you know, with the whole thing, I was just thinking about that today. Um, 
you know, with death and bereavement. Mm-hmm. How no one actually really writes. There's never a script for this, is there? We just learn this from our families and generational, you know. And even like me and my wife, we lost someone very important to us in January this year. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like the time that he passed away was kind of quite quick, you know. He was always kind of ill health. Like my wife's stepfather was just like a father to her. Mm-hmm. And it's just kind of like, you know, it goes from a person being there in the room to actually there just being a body and. I don't know, with death, I was kind of find that kind of an interesting subject or topic or something that's kind of happens and how in our lives there's, there's nothing, you know, there's, there's nothing about how do you manage this? How do you like, you know, so I guess for you in your work, you must be like, you know, someone's kind of dying and how do you kind of manage that working with people in their last stages of their life? Um, It's definitely something that's taken me well, I've been there just over a year now, so it's taken that time and probably we will continue to evolve in a lot of ways while I continue to work there. Um, yeah, it's difficult. Yeah. I'm there Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. So sometimes, you know, you can leave on a Thursday having started a project with somebody yeah. and you come back on Tuesday and they're not there. Yeah. So there are challenges in that way as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and you do get close to people. Yeah. Um, and they tell you about their lives. And so that feels like a really, um, you know, you feel honored to have shared that experience with them. Um, you know, it's going to be individual for everybody. There's been other writers in that role before, and I think they've probably handled it differently than I handle it. And the two artists I work with, you know, they've been really helpful, but they, they handle it differently than I do as well. Um, but it's really just, you know, you got to, put aside whatever your personal mm-hmm. feelings are about the situation and yeah. just focus on the patient and focus on their family and yeah. whatever is best for them. Yeah. And how have you found like, you know, your career development in Aberdeen so far? How have you found it? Have you found Aberdeen being so far north of the UK mm-hmm. an isolating place to network with people and, you know, get your work out there? Um initially when I moved here um when oil and gas was still at the height of at its, yeah. the height yeah. yet um it maybe wasn't as easy mm-hmm. um but opportunities have definitely opened up they've come up um the expo north creative industries conference is a really great thing um i was an editor for uh, causeway magazine which is up at the university yeah. for a couple of years so um i was an editor there at some points, other points, when I wasn't an editor, I've had work published by them. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, creative funding is a really great thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't have been able to do a lot of the things I've done over the last eight months if it wasn't for the funding that I did get. Um, and just in the last couple of years now, since the downturn in oil and gas, I think, and also losing out the city of culture, yeah. I think that really, that, you know, kicked people in the butt about yeah. like, oh, you know, we, sh- we like, need to build on this. That was definitely 2013, wasn't it? Or 14, I think. Yeah, something like that. I remember like, like, you know, at work and then some people just got to laugh and like, why are they putting their bid in for city of culture? It's ridiculous. Like, you know, yeah. and, and now I think, if they did that now, I think they'll probably have a good run in. You know, yeah. I like to think that, you know, in terms of like culturally and creativity, what's kind of happening in Aberdeen, I think that's kind of had a big impact on difference. And I think happened. two people were like, when we lost out to Dundee of all places, yeah. you know, not that Dundee isn't 
yeah. a creative hub. It yeah. definitely is. Yeah. But I think Aberdonians never perceived it that way. So I was like, done, D. <laughs> you know, um, I think that helped as well. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you see, if you go to Dundee now, you see how much difference or what mm -hmm. they're doing there in the center. Yeah, with there. the DNA, it's yeah. amazing. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, like, you know, fingers crossed if Aberdeen ever do do it again. <laughs> like, they've got a good run in there to come, you know. Yeah. And I think, yeah, it's, uh, you know, I guess for you, like I've been here like 13, 14 years and I've seen a lot of changes. And I guess for you, like six and a bit years as well, mm -hmm. you're seeing that. And have you found that the creative community for you be very open, armed, welcoming, supporting you? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, my involvement with the Aberdeen Writers Studio yeah. started with um, a council-funded pilot program, I mm -hmm. guess, um, called the Writer's Room, yeah. and it kind of was built off the uh, living your life as a creative um, thing, yeah. but it was specifically for writers, yeah. so it was like a CPD program, yeah. um, and I think two have run, I was on the first one, and mm. then out of that group of writers, we formed the Writer's Studio, okay. um, and you know, some of us have moved away from Aberdeen since mm -hmm. then, but we still maintain <coughs> like um, a membership and an involvement in it to whatever capacity you can. Mm -hmm. But it's always, even if you're not really, you know, participating all the time, it's good to know that there is a group there. Yeah. And I know there's other groups like that in the city yeah. as well. Like there's Lemon Tree Writers mm -hmm. and um, there's other stuff for visual artists. Yeah. Um, but for me, certainly having that group um, just when you need them yeah. has been essential because writing and other creative you know things can be very solitary experiences yeah i don't know it's kind of interested like you know when you get the opportunity to go back to home how does that kind of the creative scene in canada compare to like scotland or the uk um i mean because toronto is like kind of my biggest mm -hmm. city although hamilton is really like catching up in a lot of ways yeah. in terms of creativity and you know, they have an art crawl um, right. there's like a really nice um, sort of community of creative people coming together a lot of illustrators um, and also a lot of writers and fa fantastic writers from Hamilton yeah. one of them was actually my music teacher once okay. when I was like uh, 12 <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think maybe that's part of the reason why like thinking about going home's a bit overwhelming because yeah. it would be trying to tap into a huge community yeah. where right now I don't know anybody. <laughs> you know, I've kind of like, my writing career has really taken off here. Mm. All my opportunities are here. My network is here. Yeah. Um, and it, going home at this point would be would be tricky. Yeah. But, it, you know, Toronto, Canlit is amazing. Yeah. You know, the whole country, like there's really a, an immense amount of amazing writing we've got michael and Dace and mm. margaret atwood and um but yeah it's definitely a bigger field yeah i, I also kind of say that when people say oh would you ever move back home I'm like well basically you probably couldn't really afford to move back home and i feel like so out of sync me going down and still connecting with family and friends is a beautiful and nice thing to do mm -hmm. but because every time i go away from london it's kind of changed and you like you have to kind of move with the times and you know the manic busyness of it and i'm getting used to a life in Aberdeen are very much, I feel like, yeah, more established there, you know, yeah. like her, her being a homeowner or enjoying your work, having the friends and the networks and stuff like that. I think, yeah, like like you said, like, you know, <laughs> going back, the thought of going back home, it's like, probably is not even worth the kind of time. Like, of course, to go and visit and family and stuff, absolutely, but I guess for career-wise, 
that for you that, that you can establish yourself and you've obviously bought and um, built a good network for yourself in Aberdeen that's really a great thing to hear that I think um, that years ago like we say like you know the the, the bid for the city of culture how that didn't kind of work out but there, there wasn't I think a few years ago there was a lot of naysayers about Aberdeen and saying oh what's the point and nothing, well, nothing ever happens up here yeah. I guess it's like you know people like yourself who come in you know, this I guess you came in just for the studying aspect and actually I'm just gonna stay. Yeah. And how did that actually come about after you finished studying and said, Ah, do you know what I'm definitely staying? Like, yeah, um well I wanted to give it a go anyway. Yeah. Um and kinda of going into the final six months of my PhD, I sort of had this like light bulb moment where mm. I was like, you know what? I owe Aberdeen a lot. Yeah. You know, I've got a lot from being here. Mm-hmm. Um and yeah, I just I applied for, um, it's called the doctoral extension scheme visa. Okay. And obviously my staying is always dependent on having a visa. So that's been something I've had to navigate for years now. Um, and it gave me a year after the PhD to kind of find work. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was very lucky in that I did. Um, and yeah, I just, you know, I've got friends here and yeah. my partner's here and I really like my flat and I also like not being at home um, and I think my parents would maybe kill me if I moved somewhere else because they love Aberdeen oh, okay. like I get 10 messages from my mom a day being yeah. like I wish I was there send me pictures of okay. your garden you know? <laughs> like um, when the when the daffodils come up here in oh, like yeah. February March this and they yellow, don't at home like, everywhere yeah. Yeah, yeah she's always like oh <laughs> I really wish I was there right now. And yeah, we've traveled a lot around Scotland. And that's the other thing too. I mean, Aberdeen's like right on the doorstep of, you know, the Cairngorms. Mm -hmm. And I'm a big whiskey drinker. So that's also a good thing. Yeah. And also from our airport, you can get so many places so easily Mm. for like pretty affordable price. So there's a lot of good things about being here, even yeah. out with like the creative stuff. It's a shame my mate Steve's not here because he is a big whiskey drinker. Oh, right. And he's like, I call him the whiskey connoisseur because <laughs> he like, he's introduced me to Japanese whiskey, Nika whiskey, oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, Lagerhollen, Lafroy yeah. and stuff like, you know, just like, what the hell is this? Like, <laughs> the real peaty stuff. And yeah, it's yeah. kind of like, you know, <laughs> yeah. My, uh, my parents used to like rub it on my gums when I was teething. Yeah. So I got a really early taste <laughs> for it. <laughs> Hopefully not the early stages of alcoholism. No, like, hopefully you know, not. Yeah. That, you know, that sometimes goes hand in hand with being okay. a writer. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's, no, it's interesting. I think it's like, obviously you embrace that kind of like, you know, that Scottish thing, you know, the whiskey, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. it's just like, but yeah, that's cool, man. Like, yeah. Uh, well, my parents are big whiskey drinkers. Okay. Um, I think they go home with something like six or eight bottles in their luggage, like whenever yeah. they come back from a trip. And, yeah. I just think that's insane, but good it's, on them. <laughs> yeah, it's taken me a while to get used to it. That's through my friend, you know, kind of like trying different stuff yeah. and like, but this kind of like, you go to these places, all these bottles and stuff. Yeah. And got, you got me, <laughs> I laugh now about like, oh, kind of part of our wedding gift. It was like, um, you got a bottle of 1990 
Bal Blair whiskey. Oh, yeah, Bal Blair is really good. Yeah, yeah, and I was like, you know, just kind of like, it's not been finished because that was in 2015, but like I sort of have a sip of that once yeah. in a while and I was like, oh, okay. And he's like, oh, yeah. Yeah, I know the ones you kind of like, like the one with a little bit of sweet twinge and you know, it's like, it's just seeing someone so passionate yeah. about whiskey. You know? My dad is, he's quite passionate about whiskey, but yeah. he's always just like, oh, I haven't met one I don't like. So I don't know if he's very like technical about it, yeah. but yeah. Yeah, cool. Um, one thing I wanted to kind of ask you, like, um, kind of the body of work that you're kind of doing would you like there to be like a recurring theme through these stories that you're doing or would there be like a kind of connection like you say like Wedgwood would you kind of think like if you wrote another story there would be like an offshoot of one of the characters or you know um it's something I considered actually in the PhD initially um my supervisor wanted me to approach the whole project as short stories instead of a novel Um, and I'd come out of my master's having done um, a short, short story cycle. So that's when the short stories are readable on their own and can stand alone. But they also have these sort of this like connective tissue that mm-hmm. runs through it. So there's a, lots of short story cycles. Hemingway's In Our Time is a good example. Yeah. Um, so I approached the novel with that in mind. Um, and they are not short stories, although from the extracts, they do read on their own. Yeah. Um, and a lot of pieces of them do. Mm-hmm. They just, they could be little stories within the larger story. Um, and when I finished the PhD, I was only about 60% finished with the novel. So okay. we kind of presented it as the first half. And possibly you know i remember my supervisor saying you know it could be a trilogy you could like be looking at this generation now yeah. and another generation yeah. later um but in the end i've just gone back in and expanded on what was there and mm-hmm. and obviously it got an ending and yeah. and all of that um but i think these themes will probably continue to come up in my writing yeah. for a long time i guess like if you kind of delve deep into the kind of themes of what kind of themes are coming out of like specifically wedgwood at the moment yeah, um, I mean, one big part of my thesis, I looked at female testimony. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was even before, like, Me Too became this huge movement. Yeah. Um, but there had been lots of um, examples in the media of, you know, um, like men um, in high-profile positions mm-hmm. um, being taken to task for sexual harassment and um, there's a big one in Canada um Gian Gomeshi was um actually the CBC's sort of darling okay. um he had a radio show and he ended up going to trial um on a number of charges so I talked about that in the thesis um but after you know me too sort of started and oddly I was on a writing retreat the week that all the Harvey Weinstein stuff okay. came out so that really like you know, my head was not yeah. <laughs> really where it should have been at that point, but it definitely fed into the writing in a way because, you know, the book is about these sort of three sisters coming to terms with um, an abusive father who okay. has passed away. Yeah. And um, I think that sense of the difference between fact and truth is really important because mm-hmm. personal truth is an essential thing for everybody and it may not line up with so-called facts Mm -hmm. but that doesn't invalidate it in any way um and i think it's important to 
to listen first and foremost to whatever kind of testimony is coming out. Um, And that was something that I tried to translate in the novel as well. Like I said, trying not to place one voice above any other. Yeah. And I think, you know, like, you know, I think on the podcast, we kind of, you know, as I guess we touched on like the kind of Me Too movement, mm-hmm. the Harvey, Harvey Weinstein, <coughs> probably like Kevin Spacey stuff. And I, I kind of remembered like the, as one of the fingers, like an actress on that show, Girls, mm-hmm. she came out and Lena Denham and her co worker, like the producer, kind of just kind of like, you know, just kind of almost kind of like shamed this person and mm-hmm. said, oh, you know, you shouldn't be, you know, like, they're, they're, we're, gonna, we're, we're on the side of the alleged, you know, abuser. And yeah. kind of like backtracking on that, and then like you were saying, it's important that someone's truth is heard, or to, you know, their story is heard, because there's there's something in that, like, you know, no, I don't think anyone gets up and says, "I'm going to accuse someone of these horrific no. things." You know, no one does yeah. that unless yeah. unless it it happened, yeah. because the moment you start thinking about telling that story, it's just like body shaking you know no one no one volunteers really to put themselves in that position they're either compelled to Mm -hmm. um or you know they they can't maybe yeah i remember that was a big thing about the me too movement as well was just because women weren't speaking out Mm -hmm. didn't mean that you know it hadn't happened to more of them yeah more of us yeah yeah and yeah. i think you know it's, it's a shame is when i think people have to kind of weigh up the i guess age will come to it a factor mm-hmm. where you are in your career and for the perception of i'm in an industry where i don't want to be a problem you know i don't want to come across as a difficult person yeah. and it's a shame that's the kind of world that we're in you know you know when somebody comes forward and says this is what happened to me you know, some that she's worked with has said, her and her colleagues said, oh no, we don't really believe this, you know, she's yeah. like trying to extort money out of this guy and stuff. No, and Lena Dunham, she's really great in a lot of ways, but she's yeah. an imperfect feminist. Yeah. And I think, you know, most of us actually are, you know. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, she's a tricky one. Um, she is, because I don't know. <sighs> yeah, I'm probably sounding like a real dick now, but... <laughs> She's like, you know, that kind of person who can like, okay, no, right. Sounds Leave bad, people like, when it's convenient yeah, for you, like, right? It's like, like that. Yeah, yeah, you're on the bandwagon, just like, you know, someone just kind of peers out of the bushes like, oh yeah, you know, like, you know, yeah, this is really like, I think people kind of, like a few celebrities were complaining saying like the whole Me Too stuff, like her just kind of coming out on like in the bandwagon, yeah. even though she kind of just kind of like poo-pooed someone's that she worked with allegations. I mean, one, one big part of the novel is that, um, it, it goes back and forth between what is the present and flashbacks. Um, and that's like constant throughout basically. Um, and I think by the end, what I hope that the reader gets is that it's important to speak out Mm -hmm. when you can and if you can. Um, because at least between these three sisters saying their truth to each other, yeah. maybe there's they can't agree yeah. and maybe they can't reconcile, yeah. but just having an awareness of other people's experiences yeah. is really important. Oh, definitely, because I guess, you know, for like in the story, the three sisters, you know, exploring this and kind of ref- having a, ref- a space to reflect on the past always kind of does it, you know, it makes it real. And like you said earlier about the interpretations of how people at different stages and different stages of development actually 
interpret what actually you know the situation was like uh, oh you know, totally yeah, i mean yeah. we we often think that what memory is is history yeah. which is factual but that's yeah. not what memory is yeah. at all memory is like constantly changing yeah. and memory is constantly um reimagining you know your personal identity yeah. as well who you want to be now is very mm. much dependent on how you choose to remember certain events the yeah. past yeah um and i think that's really freeing you yeah. know if everyone could sort of realize that then it would be okay if the story changed mm -hmm. from one day to the next it would yeah. be okay if yeah. there were you know these sort of inserted details yeah. to kind of boost what is perceived as the truth and it would be okay if you know in a courtroom setting mm -hmm. we could appreciate that victim testimony was going to be full of holes yeah but we're, i don't think we're really there yet yeah you know? no because I, I work with in my job like like children and young people there's that mm -hmm. kind of element of like you know trauma and how like with like you know police who are working with the families and if there's if a young person experienced something horrific or witnessed something how the stories change and legally how that has an impact if somebody's going to get prosecuted or charged you know because i guess in the child's mind you know like oh this happened at this point and then i think from they've been interviewed or questioned it's very much a rigid kind of thing well what happened at this time and that time thinking, oh and then it changes and then you know the evidence you know they're saying oh i have to throw that out we can't take that as a statement and it's yeah. a shame but I think you know what you're saying is like spot on. You know, I think of the memory is like it's a fluid thing, a process. It's not like a set thing, you know. Because yeah. my memories of an experience when I was younger would be totally different compared to my siblings or friends. You know, yeah, that definitely. I, and how I see it. I know? think socially we're starting to make those connections, yeah. but um, and hopefully it's not too long before you know that impacts the way that victims are cared yeah. for in a yeah. courtroom setting. Um, the way that they're interrogated, mm -hmm. you know, the whole thing is an absolute mess beginning yeah. to end at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, but I think a lot of that could be improved by changing the law. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. I think that's kind of the only way kind of forward mm -hmm. in reality. And hopefully, hopefully we do get there. Um, I know you bought a couple of pieces of work mm -hmm. that you like to read today. Sure, that'd yeah. That would be a great thing for you. So what, have you, what would you like to read for us today? Um... Will I do one or will I do both? You could do one of them if you want. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'll maybe read something I've been working on really recently. Okay. Um, it's quite short and it's a chapter towards the end of the novel. It's mm -hmm. told from, I should say, each chapter is told from a different character's perspective. Yeah. Um, so not only within the chapter is perspective shifting between the past and the All present, right. but the character is changing as well. Okay. Um, so this is the youngest sister, Bryce, and she's sort of been through this experience of having gone back to the family home um, and helped clean it out. You know, she's sort of got back in touch with her sisters. She's also started a bit of a love affair um, with this man that she knew when she was a kid. Yeah. Um, so this is just <coughs> her sort of back in Chicago where mm -hmm. she lives. Um, kind of reflecting on how that experience is, has changed her. Okay. It's called Lake Effect. Chicago was colder than Toronto. It truly was. Everyone talked about Toronto like it was the capital of winter, and the cement and skyscrapers certainly held the cold, but Chicago was the windy city, and the wind could blow right through you if it wanted to, and it often did. Bryce stood at the window of her old walk-up and listened to the wind whistling through the window sills, between the minuscule cracks in the old brick exterior and down the chimney. 
The cars parked on the street below her looked like they'd been frozen into their spaces, toy cars left in a snowdrift by a careless toddler. Snow whipped down the street from the west, using the rows of houses as flumes. Much of the snowfall lately had been lake effect, just like at home, but this year it had been so severe that it had practically buried buffalo. Snow had literally reached the eaves troughs. She knew it happened when the air was significantly colder than the water and was caused by the warm water vapor rising from the surface and freezing into snow as it hit the colder air. It was why the area around the Great Lakes was called a snow belt. Most of other snow belts in the world were coastal or in the middle of the sea or ocean, but the Great Lakes were so large that they created their own weather, just like mountains. She had avoided leaving her apartment except to get groceries at the small shop down the street. Most of her work could be done from home, so she only went out if she had an appointment with a client or if there was a private sale or an auction. When she did go out, she phoned for a car from Sotheby's or took a taxi, mainly because it put her in the company of another person, but without having to do or say very much at all. She'd always thought she'd settled into a kind of gentle loneliness being in Chicago, but since returning to Wedgwood and spending so much time there, she'd found she'd grown accustomed to the company of other people, at first, the awareness of another person being in the next room, the comfort she got from the small noises they made when they shifted in their chair, cleared their throat, sipped their tea, or sniffed. Duncan had changed that. He'd slowly made her space his space, and her sense of closeness became much more intimate. The awareness of his breathing, his body shrinking and expanding, his heart beating next to her in bed. The deep throes of the northern night, when the snow fell in a sheet and she could hear it skating across the windows and landing on the roof, that awareness had traveled inward until his sounds became her sounds and his breath became her breath, rising and falling in a cycle of fresh inhalations and warm exhalations. His breath was sweet, like cola, and she breathed it in deep, desperate gulps. Wow, thank you. Thank you. That's really good. You read that completely straight through without stumbling. That I probably would have stumbled on that. <laughs> so, but um, yeah, Emily, thank you for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having podcast. me. No, no worries. And just wanted to find out, like, where can listeners kind of find your work online and follow you, like, social media? Um, I do have a Twitter page. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's M Kate underscore Utter. I'm not on it very often. I should be better at it. Mm-hmm. Um, I also have an Instagram account. Um, it's same thing. I'm Kate Utter, so they can find me there. Cool. Um, and I'm going to be uh, doing some workshops actually at Food Story in okay. April, um, middle of April and beginning of May, mm-hmm. open to beginners, um, and that'll be advertised on Food Story's page okay. and my own, and there'll be an Eventbrite invitation okay. as well. All right, great. That's perfect. So, Emily Utter, thank you for coming on Create Me Podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, cheers, no worries. And we'll catch up with you guys soon. Take care for now. Bye.